it's good to have you here, and it's good to it's good to be here. It's good to be back. Um, September was just a really strange month for me because usually September there's just a lot of preaching and teaching and stuff going on. And for me, uh, September was different. Uh, back four weeks ago, had. Uh, surgery on my shoulder, needed to fix some things that I had uh, damaged a while back. And so I, I've never had surgery before, so it's kind of like a newbie to this. And, you know, so it's like the surgery itself wasn't a big deal if you've had surgery and it's just a shoulder surgery but and you kind of go in and they uh they they kind of hook you up to a whole bunch of stuff and they tell you it's going to be fine it's an easy surgery it's an hour and a half we know exactly what we're doing you know everything's going to be great and then once they get you all hooked up so you can't get out then they hand you a whole bunch of disclaimer forms right you're supposed to like sign this sign this what are these for oh nothing nothing don't worry about it just if anything goes wrong it's not our fault you know kind of thing but by that point you're already semi on drugs so you'll just sign anything and then and then they kind of wheel you back and uh, surgery was pretty it was an hour and a half and they snipped and cut and sewed and did some stuff and uh, you get out of surgery and basically a couple hours they wait for you to wake up and uh, I think that the thing is once you eat the graham cracker and eat the applesauce you're out of there so um, they they sent me out my wife brought me home and that was really like the easy part the the, the challenging part was the recovery at least for me just coming home and you really you know you can't do anything and and I, I like to stay busy so you come home and you're in a sling uh, and you can't use your arms so anything that takes two hands you, you can't do so like for one thing you can't really get dressed so uh, I had to wear sweats and I quickly realized I don't actually own sweats like who knew so I, need, so I had to borrow my wife's hoodie um, which I also realized I'd never own a hoodie um, I do own a hoodie now. They're actually pretty cool. Uh, but I got a you know, hoodie and you can't, so you got to like have a shirt and there's just all this mound of bandages and stuff. So if you're going to wear a shirt, you have to kind of cut it and put it on. If you've ever done that, it's really fun. And then there's a bag of, a big bag of peas on your shoulder for like five days. Um, I've never eaten peas since. And then um, there's no, you can't take a shower because you can't get the sutures wet. So after a few days, there's really no going out in public anyways even if you could get dressed. And, and then there's no computer, right, which is no computer. I could text, actually, because I could do this. I was like a Tyrannosaurus, um, like texting, but, and no driving, at least for me, not much driving uh, for the first week. And no guitar, so I you know, couldn't just sit down and play guitar. No outdoor projects which for me this time of year is kind of tough. There's a lot of stuff to do in the yard. No, no trimming hedges, that kind of stuff. I tried TV, gave it a try, I'd heard about it. Um, turn it on, uh, super boring. Uh, in fact, it was so boring I canceled our cable. It was that bad. Um, I did get to read a lot of books, read a lot of theology. Here's something trippy, read theology on oxycodone. It's like just really... <laughs> Like, especially prophecy, it's just really, it's really crazy. But the nice thing was, I had a lot of time to think, right? And sometimes, you know what I mean, we're so busy, we're so distracted, we never really stop to think. I mean, the kind of thinking where you just stop for hours, and you just pray, and you just meditate on Scripture, and you just talk to God. And it's sometimes it's almost grueling, but just 
thinking, and you know what happens is without any distractions and without any to-do list, there's, there's no list to check off today, except that box that says do nothing, um, that you get to do a lot of thinking. And when you get to do a lot of thinking, sometimes, hopefully, you start to do some evaluating, which I got to do, got to think a lot about my life. Like, what have I done with my life? You know, where am I headed with my life? How am I spending my time? Am I, am I doing the, the important things? I, right? I mean, one of the questions you start to ask is, what am I doing that will last? What will last? And of course, Jesus answered that question. He said it was easy. There's just really two main things in life. Love God and love people. Those are the two things that will last. But sometimes we get so busy, we don't, we don't think about that very much. I got to think a lot about our church. I got to think about what's most important. What are we doing that will make a difference? What are we doing that will, that will last? And what are we doing that's just doing? That's just marking time. And as a result of that thinking a little bit and evaluating, I, I decided to take a, a three weeks as a church to kind of pull back a little bit. Now, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we've been in Luke almost two years. We're just a few weeks away from being two years into it. So if how many of you were here two years ago when we started the series. Do you remember me telling you, like, where will you be in two years? Have you thought about where will, it's two years, right? I mean, it was really quick. And here we are. And my question is, what have you done in the last two years? How, how have you followed God? How has God used you? What difference have you made? What have you done in the last two years that will last? And what have you done that's just marking time? Well, I want to talk about that. I decided to pull back for a few weeks and to talk about the main things for us as individuals, as believers, and as a church, because actually they're all pretty much wrapped up together. And I want to talk about this, this main thing. And we're calling this Oikos 16, so we take once a year or so, we set aside a little time, we talk about Oikos. And I want to do that. I want to talk a little bit about our purposes. Why do we exist as a church and why do we as believers exist? And so I would just start this way. If somebody was to say, why does Gateway Community Church exist? Like, what are you all about? If I had to just say in a few words, I'd say, we exist to glorify God. It's a pretty traditional way of putting it, but a good way to put it. We exist to glorify our Father, to do things that lift Him up, to do things that praise Him, that, that magnify Him, that allow other people to see who he is. As a church, our leadership sat down years ago and we kind of talked, to like, what does that mean, though? How do, we, how do we do that? How do we pursue that on a practical level? And what we decided is, there's really three things as a church that we can help people do that will last forever. First thing is this, we want to help people know Jesus personally. These three things you probably know. We exist to know, grow, and show. We want people to know People, uh, to know Jesus personally and then know him progressively, uh, more intimately. We want to grow together as a spiritual family. God has designed us to thrive when we are together. That's how we're designed. And to show God's love to the world around us. So we don't exist as a church just to come together and to, to, to close the doors and to have a good old time and worship God and get in the word and then go out and, and hide it. God wants us to show his love to the world around us. And so I want to take three weeks and talk about these things, about knowing and growing and showing and what does it mean. And we do these kind of in two contexts, if you will. We do them as a church gathered and as a church scattered. As a church gathered, it's what we're doing right now. It's what we did last night and we'll do again at 11 o'clock. 
people come together, you know, we fellowship a little bit, we sing some worship songs to God, we get into the Word of God together, and right now there's, uh, there's some people back ministering to our children and next door as well, and, and there'll be people here tonight ministering to our youth, and it's the church scattered and, or gathered, and when we're gathered, we do those three things. We want people to know and grow and show, but we don't just do it in this building. We do it as a church scattered as well. In fact, really, our greatest potential as a church in terms of reaching our community isn't what's happening in here right now. It's what happens when every one of you and everyone who was here last night and will be here at 11, when all of us leave this building and we go into our neighborhoods and we go into the places of business and into our schools and into the places where we work and we take the gospel with us. I mean, this is where the real potential lies for the church. Now, the way that this usually happens as we, as we scatter, as we go out into the world, studies say that the way or the context in which we mostly impact people with the gospel is through something we call an oikos. So if you've been coming to Gateway for a while, you're familiar with the word. It's a Greek word. You can find it in the gospels and you can find it in the book of Acts and some of the epistles as well. The word oikos. It's a Greek word. Say it with me. Oikos, all right? And the word oikos means household. So sometimes when you're reading through in the Gospels or the book of Acts and it'll say that, say, someone in their entire household came to Christ, that word household is the word oikos. Now, back in, in Jesus' day, if you had said, who's in your oikos, right? You know, people back then would have answered differently than today. When we think of a household today, we think geographic. So if you ask me who's in your oikos, who's in your household, I might be tempted to think, well, there's my, my wife and my two sons, and, uh, and, and you know, we got a cat, and that's, that's, a, that's my oikos. But back in Jesus' day, if you would ask someone who's in your oikos, they didn't think geographical, they thought relational. They thought about people with whom they had a loving, influential relationship, people they were connected to that they interacted with a lot in a loving, influential way. That's how they thought. So they might say, again, I might say, well, there's my wife. I got a couple of sons. I have a daughter who's going to college in Arizona, but she's in our oikos because we have a loving, influential relationship that exists mostly of texting all day long. Um, and then, um, you know, we have a few neighbors who are in our oikos. Uh, my mom and dad who live down in Southern California, even though there's a lot of distance, they're in my oikos. We have a loving, influential relationship. You might have in your oikos, for instance, people live in your house, uh, people that you're related to. Uh, there might be people who are, who are friends of yours, neighbors, people you, you work with or go to school with. But these are people you have loving, influential relationships with. And studies say that the average American has anywhere between 8 to 15 of these loving, influential relationships. Some of you have more, some of you have less, but in general, 8 to 15 people that we have loving, influential relationships with. And here's why this is so significant when we start talking about the gospel. Because study after study continues to show that roughly 95% of people who come to Christ, who place their faith in Christ, will say that they did it primarily because of an oikos relationship. So you might get answers like this, well, I went to a Billy Graham crusade and I accepted Jesus or I did it at church or I did it in Sunday school or I was at work and someone shared the gospel with me. But, but what people say by and large is there was an individual or there was a few people. It was my mom or my dad or a friend or a brother or sister or somebody, but they just loved me and they were praying for me and they were investing in me and having conversations with me. And eventually it was really pretty much through that person that I was introduced to Jesus Christ through oikos relationships. In fact, let me just 
think about this for a minute. How many of you would say that primarily it was through an oikos relationship that you came to know Christ? Just raise your hand if that describes you, see? And again, that's most of us. Now here's the thing. In the same way that there was someone who had you in their oikos and was praying for you and eventually shared Christ with you, you have that same opportunity because God has given you anywhere between eight to 15 people and he's put them in your world so you can influence them and bless them with the gospel. And today we're going to talk about the first way that we bless them, and that is through helping them to know Jesus Christ personally. Now, specifically, I want to talk about giving the people the, uh, the gospel today, and I want to look in Colossians, and then I want to get very practical in a way that, that we seldom do. But, but we are surrounded by people who are in spiritual need. The Bible refers to people without Christ in a few ways. It sometimes refers to them as being um, dead, spiritually dead, dead in their sin, uh, people who are lost. That's how Jesus described them. They're, they're lost. They don't know how they got here. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. They're just living life. But the good news is that we have the answer. We have the gospel. We have a privilege. We have the privilege of sharing the good news with people who need it. And I put it another way, we have a, we have a command. Now, I don't know, there's just something about, I notice this in Christianity, when we start talking about, um, you know, Jesus giving commands, like people love Jesus giving suggestions and Jesus giving good advice, but there's just something about Jesus giving commands that, you know, kind of bristle. People are like, yeah, I, don't, I don't really like that. But let me just say this. Jesus commanded his followers. He commanded us to share the gospel, very heavy words. Why would Jesus command it? Well, because it must be kind of important. And he doesn't want us to miss it. So he commands us to do this. Now, in Colossians chapter 4, which is a text I want to look at a little bit today, Paul, in chapter 3, has been talking about relationships. Because relationships, they're just a big part of life. And he talks about different kinds of relationships in chapter 3. And about the fact that in a lot of relationships, there's tension. They're just, you, you get tension sometimes. So he talks about relationships between believers. You ever notice tension between believers? No, all believers get along, right? Perfect love and harmony, no, no issues there, right? Paul, Paul says sometimes believers don't get along that good, so let's talk about that. He talks about um, uh, relationships between people of different races. Right? Interesting to me, it was a big issue back then, apparently still an issue today. Uh, it talks about tension that can exist between economic classes. He talks about relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children and children and parents, between employers and employees and, and masters and slaves. Because Paul wants us to understand something that oftentimes we think of relationships as a source of tension and I wish these people would just get it together and, and, and get on with my agenda and sometimes we get frustrated with that but relationships are actually a God-given opportunity for us to live out the gospel, to live out God's love. Anyone, anyone can close their door, lock it and say in the privacy of their own home, I love God. I love God. Anyone can say that. But the scripture says again and again and again, the way that you live out your love for God is you unlock the door, you go outside, and you get around people who annoy you and bother you and who are less than perfect like you, and you still love them. Now that, he says, is where we begin to live out the love of Christ. But it can be difficult. It can be difficult because I find that oftentimes, our tendency is to make our relationships more self-centered than God-centered. 
And we can do that in our marriage. We can do that with people we work with, with people we go to school with. We're really, we don't even think about it, but our relationships become very, very self-centered instead of very God-centered. So Paul says, what do we do about this? How do we keep our relationships the way that they ought to be? So he says, well, what we do is we pray about it. That's where we start. In Colossians chapter four, verse two, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. That that word steadfast means to to be earnestly engaged, to continuously engage in, in praying about something. And I think this is important because we can get so caught up in our own lives, in our own needs, in our own to-do lists, in our own goals and wants and desires that we forget about the people around us, the people who have needs, people who are struggling, who are hurting, people who are broken. Jesus says people, people who are lost. And we can forget about them. So he says, be watchful. Don't drift into distraction don't drift into being unconcerned about the people around you. We need to say, so stay, stay watchful in prayer. Pay attention to the needs of other people, to their needs. And, and he says, lift them up to God and, and, and listen to the Holy Spirit and do all this with a thankful attitude. But be watchful for the people around you. And then he says this, he says, and, and pray. Pray for an open door with the people around you who don't know Christ. In verse three, He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which Paul says, I am in prison. So we're gonna talk about sharing the gospel here. And one of the first things I see Paul saying is that that sharing the gospel with other people should be at the top of our prayer list. So I don't don't know what's on your prayer list today. Probably really uh, some really important stuff that you should be praying for, but Somewhere near the top should always be praying for opportunities to share the gospel with people around you. That, that God would, as Paul says, open a door of opportunity. Now I love the fact that Paul said we should pray about this. Part of what I think he's saying here is that we need to remember it's not up to us. It's not up to us, you know, in just the right timing. It's not up to us coming up with just the right words or just the right stories. It's up to God. It's God who brings people into our lives. It's God who prepares the hearts of people around us. It's not us. It's not having just the right words. It's God who prepares hearts. It's God who opens doors of opportunity to share the gospel. It's God who uses our words when we share. It's it's God who gives the other person faith. It's not you. It's not me. None of us will ever convince someone to believe in Jesus. That's, That's what God does. It's God who saves. We don't do any of that, all right? We just get the privilege of delivering the good news. So think of it this way. It's, it's, it's God who sent Jesus to earth. It's Jesus who went to the cross. It's Jesus who did the hard work. It's Jesus who went to the grave. It's Jesus who rose from the dead. It's Jesus who gave us the gospel. The only thing we have to do is just speak it, all right? We, when you think about it, we get the fun part. We get to tell the good news. It's God who does all the all the heavy lifting. So he says, pray for us, that God may open to us a door for the word. Now, the, the word that he's talking about specifically here, he goes on to explain, to declare the mystery 
of Christ. Now there's a whole lot behind this idea of the mystery of Christ that we don't have time to get into this morning except to say this. Paul was speaking to people for whom this whole idea of God sending a, a, a Messiah, of, of God sending, of, of coming to earth in flesh, of being born of a virgin, was just strange, was mysterious to people. That, that Jesus would come and live a righteous life in our, in our place, that he would even need to do that in the first place. Because Paul was talking to people who thought, well, I'm a Jew. Well, well I'm God's chosen people. Well, I mean, surely if I give a, a live a good life, and, and God will let me into heaven. And the, the mystery was, no, that will never get you to heaven. So Jesus came and he lived a perfect life in your place and he went to a cross and he died and then, and then he rose from the dead and, and here was the really mysterious thing that that salvation wasn't just open to Jews but to Gentiles, to anyone who would place their faith in Christ. And then Paul goes on and says this, he says, open a door of opportunity for me to share the gospel for which, notice how he ends this, I am in, in what? In prison. Right. Now, how in the world did Paul get in prison? What did, he, what did he do? Well, he had been sharing the gospel, and things got really ugly, and he got persecuted and beaten and thrown in prison, and now he's chained to the, to the floor, and Paul scribbles a note to the church and says, would you guys pray for me that God would give me more opportunities to share the gospel? It's like, how cool is that? He got thrown in prison for sharing the gospel. And now he's saying, if you guys could pray just anything for me, pray that I have more opportunities to share the gospel. Have you ever been afraid to share the gospel? Have you ever thought to yourself, well, I, I, I wish I could share it, but it'd be, it's, it's a little too risky. At school, you know, if I speak up in class, that, that could be risky. I could get in trouble. I could get persecuted. I, I could get sent to the principal. I might get a, a lower grade. You know, if I share Jesus at work, I could get in trouble. I could not get a promotion. I could lose my job. If I, if I share Jesus with my family, you know, it could make Thanksgiving really awkward. You know, if I'm at Starbucks and I talk about Jesus too loudly, somebody might throw their pumpkin spice latte at me. That's not, you know, politically correct to do. Um, if I shared it in my neighborhood, if I shared it on the team. But here's Paul. Paul's like, you know, sharing the gospel got me rejected got me beat up, got me thrown in prison, got me put in chains, but I'd love to have more of those opportunities. Now, a good question becomes, is, is Paul not right in the head? You know, like, why would, Paul, why would Paul ask prayer for this? Well, I think as you read Paul's writings, I can come up with at least three reasons why I think what Paul would do this. First is, you notice as you read Paul's writings that this is a guy who is just absolutely in awe of his salvation. He still can't stop talking about the fact that he was a, a persecutor of the church, a murderer of Christians, a, a persecutor of Jesus, and somehow, for some unknown reason to Paul, God in his mercy reached down and through a miraculous situation just drew Paul to himself. And Paul, years later, still like, I still can't believe that God saved me. I, I can't believe it. He just lives in awe of his salvation I mean, one of the questions you have to think about is, is Paul in awe of his more than we are because his salvation was somehow more miraculous or amazing than ours? No, but I think Paul just lived with this awareness. When's the last time that you just sat back and thought about how amazing it is that you know Jesus Christ? Because I'm telling you, it is amazing 
It's a miracle. It's a work of God. It's crazy sometimes when I think about how we can come to church, sing a song, and kind of be kind of mellow about it, trying to wake up, pray a prayer, listen to a sermon, hear the, hear the gospel preached, be out in the community and get in a conversation about Jesus and just be kind of, you know, I'd, Paul would be like, snap out of it. <laughs> Man, Paul would be like, I'm just, I can't stop being in awe of this. I think he was in awe of his salvation. I think, secondly, he was serious about being obedient to Jesus Christ. He's like, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus saved me. What do you do when almighty God saves you? Well, you obey him. Paul's like, you know, Paul's like, that's what you do. You obey him, and gladly so. After all, he knows what he's talking about. If he tells you to do something, he must know what he's talking about. And thirdly, I think Paul understood what was at stake, just, just clearly. Paul's like, I know what's on the line. This is life and death for the people around me. So Paul says, pray for an opportunity. And the second thing he says is this, pray that I'll make it clear. That when I share the gospel, I'll make it clear. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That's what he says in verse four. You know, I was thinking back when I first came to Jesus, and I've shared this with you before, but I, I grew up in a non-Christian home. I grew up in a very, very Catholic community. I uh, just kept my distance from that. Uh, it was really weird to me. I'd never read the Bible. I'd never heard the gospel. I didn't know about Jesus. And, and then through just a, 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 an amazing set of circumstances, God saved me. I became his. I, was, I had my faith in Christ, but I hardly knew anything about Christianity. I, I had just started going to church. I didn't know the gospel clearly, and I couldn't figure out how to tell my family that I'd become a Christian because I knew it wasn't going to go over well, and I just wasn't sure how to do it. But finally, uh, a couple weeks after being a Christian, I, we were at dinner, and we were on the dinner table, and I just thought, that's it. I'm going to tell my family I became a Christian. So I did. I just I blurted it out. I said, uh, I became a Christian. And it was just like dead silence around the dinner table. Like, nobody knew what to say, and I didn't know what to say. And, and then finally, someone asked me, like, what does that mean? What does that mean that you're a Christian? And I, I, I was like, well, um, I mean, Jesus is God, and I'm, I'm not. And um, he died for my sins. And uh, I mean, that part was easy. I think they, they, they believed I was a sinner. But like the whole part of Jesus dying for my sins and placing my faith. And so they started to ask me questions. And I, the thing was, I couldn't, I couldn't answer really their questions. I couldn't explain clearly to them what I believed. I just knew Jesus died for me. It was all fuzzy, but the thing I realized was it wasn't helping them. Like I, I knew Jesus and I knew I had the Holy Spirit, but I, I couldn't really help them understand. I couldn't explain it clearly. And I think when we first come to Jesus, a lot of times we have a lot of enthusiasm and, and we have a story about how he saved us, but, but the details of the gospel can be fuzzy to us. Now there's kind of a, a, a term we use for this, it's called doctrine. Doctrine is what we call the details of the gospel. And a lot of times when you say the word doctrine in the church, like eyes glaze over and they roll back and you know, people start checking Facebook. And, but here's the thing about doctrine. Okay, doctrine is what the Bible says about God and Jesus and humanity and sin and salvation. And sometimes people tell me, I just want to know Jesus. I don't want to have to get into all the doctrine stuff. Can I suggest to you that that's a very selfish way to think about having a relationship with God? Because what you're really saying in essence on one hand is, I don't really care enough about the people around me who don't know Jesus to really study so I can explain to them clearly 
what it means to know God. Like, think about that. So one of the reasons, of course, that we want to know doctrine is it helps us know God better, know how to live better, but there's another reason. We do it for the people around us. Somebody's got to explain to them. Clearly, as Paul said, clearly. Clearly explain what the gospel is. Can we do that? We need to make it clear. In order to make it clear, that means we might need to prepare. I mean, think about in life some of the things that you've had to prepare for. Maybe you were going to take a test and you had to prepare for that. It was at school or a driver's test or maybe you are going to go for a job interview and you needed to prepare for that or for a presentation or you're going to have an important conversation. So maybe you studied, maybe you did some research, you, you, you practiced a little bit, you got some advice, you memorized some things. This is also, I think, what we need to do at times with the gospel. So we're prepared to make a clear presentation. So I want to take a few minutes and I want to just walk you through something that, that does this. If you turn over your notes on the back side, we've got something we call the three circles. Now over the years I've learned some different ways of presenting the gospel. There, there's the four spiritual laws, maybe you can remember that. There's the, there's the Romans road. There's lots of ways to do this. I want to suggest to you one way that you can just present the gospel to people. You can just, you know, you can grab a napkin and when you go to Los Dos after church here, you'll go to Los Dos Dos or Los Triple Dos or wherever you go and you can just pull out, I want to give you something so you can pull out a napkin and get a pen and just, if, if the waiter comes up and says, hey, you know, you look like a Christian. What does that mean? You're like, hey, well, I'm glad you asked. And you can just walk them through this, all right? So this isn't the only way to present the gospel. Here's my goal this morning. I want to present it to you in a way that's clear and simple so you can take it with you and you can do it. So start with a piece of paper or a napkin or something. And we're going to have three circles. I've already got those circles on your notes in the back. And in the first circle up in the upper left-hand corner, we're going to write this, God's design in that circle. So here's what we want to do as we talk to people. Conversations about the gospel should always begin with God. It begins with God who is eternal, with God who is holy. I always start conversations this way. I'll always say, there is a God. The Bible teaches there is a God. I believe there's a God. I believe that, that really creation itself points to a God. He created a world with design, a world with beauty, a world all around us where there is evidence of a creator of a designer. In Romans 1.20, and I've got a bunch of passages listed down at the bottom there for you, uh, for you to follow along. In Romans 1.20, speaking to this, it says this. For since the creation of the world, since God created the world, his invisible attributes, that, are, that is some things we can know about God, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. We can see some of these things about God. Being understood through what has been made so they are without excuse. Now we call, for instance, creation, we have a term for this, we call it general revelation. General, that it points to the existence of a designer, of a creator. It doesn't tell us details of the gospel, but it does point to the fact that there is a designer, that there is a God, and that this God has created us. We are not an accident. We are not the product of evolution. We have been designed by God in his image with purpose. And that purpose, by the way, is not complicated. Jesus said it very simply. We exist to do two things, to love God and to love people. So we love God, that is we worship and enjoy him, we walk with him and we love people who are created in God's image. So up in that first circle, we have God who has designed a world. And then, this is where things start to get ugly. We're gonna, have a, we're gonna kind of connect the circles with a line and we're gonna write the word sin. Small world, uh, word, 
Very controversial. This is where people kind of sit back and go, oh, you're one of those, huh? So here's what we say. God created this world that was designed to live in harmony where everything worked along but very well, but we infected it with something we call sin. Now, there's a lot of ways to describe sin, but sin is basically what, whenever we reject God and his design for our life, that's sin. So God created us. Uh, he gave us standards. He gave us ethics. He gave us commands. Yes, God gave us commands because he loves us and knows what's best for us. He gave us uh, ethics and standards for relationships, uh, for, the, for the kind of words that come out of our mouth, uh, for how we use our body, for our abilities, skills, times, uh, wealth, sex, motives. But what scripture says is the very first people said, we're going to take all these things, God, and we're going to do what we want, not what you want. And they pushed God off the throne of their life and they put themselves on the throne, became self-centered instead of God-centered. And this is what we call sin. And in Romans it tells us, all have sinned. Everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And the results of sin are twofold. We have spiritual death, that is we are separated, disconnected from God, born with a soul that is dead. And we experience physical death in this world as well. This kind of leads us to the second circle in which you could write the words brokenness. So we have God's design, which is perfect, but we sinned and it created a world and people who are broken because without God, life doesn't, it doesn't work. Without God, the soul is empty. With God, without God, we are continually looking to fill that with something. And doesn't that really explain the world that we live in? Have you ever noticed people who just grab onto anything to, to order their life around? Because that, without God in the soul, there's a vacuum and we just have to fill it with something. But without God, we lack truth. We lack wisdom to be able to make really good decisions. We lack real peace, lasting peace that goes beyond our circumstances. And every part of life becomes distorted. Relationships, thinking, values, love, in Romans 1.25, it talks about this very thing it, about people without crisis is what they did is they exchanged the truth about God and he's kind of talking about general revelation. They saw that there is a God, they rejected that and it says uh, they rejected it for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And this really describes our society. We live in a culture that worships the, the created instead of the creator. We live in a world of people who worship relationships, who worship their marriage, who worship their kids, who worship money and stuff and wealth and accomplishment and toys and power and sex and food and pleasure. All these things are things that were created instead of worshiping the creator. And of course, the problem with many of these things, even though that many of them are good things, is they cannot be God. They cannot fill your soul. It's not that they don't have a place, but their place is not on the throne of your life. And this takes us to the third circle. You might write in that last circle the word gospel. The word gospel means good news. And the good news is this, because of God's love for us, despite the fact that we had sinned, despite the fact that we are broken, God loved us anyways. And he didn't leave us in our brokenness. What he did is he came down to this earth, born of a virgin. His name was Jesus. He was God in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. Lived the life that we should have lived. 
a life of loving God and loving people. At the age of about 33 years old, he allowed himself to be betrayed, to be arrested, tortured, mocked, ridiculed, hung on a cross. But he went to that cross as part of God's design. Because on that cross, he took your sin, everything you'd ever done wrong in my sin. He held on to that. He, he died for that sin so that we could be restored to a relationship with God. In Colossians chapter 2, in fact, it puts it this way. What Christ did on the cross was this. He was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. So you can imagine it this way. Every sin that you've ever committed was written down, if you will, on a ledger pad. It's a big, big, thick pad, right, with your name on it. And that is your debt that you've incurred because of your sin. Jesus took that debt. It was nailed with him on the cross. And when Jesus died for that, it was set aside so that now you could have a relationship with God. How do you get that? In John 3, 16, notice what it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that's how we connect with what God did through believing in Christ. So what do we do, all right? Another little arrow from brokenness to gospel in two words, repent, real popular word today, and believe. Repent and believe. So hearing the gospel is not good enough. Going to church, singing a song, uh, giving money is not, a, a, not good enough. It doesn't get you right with God. How do you get right with God? In Mark 1.15, so the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Two things, repent and believe in the gospel. Now that word repent simply means to change your thinking. So you change your thinking. You admit that you're a sinner. You admit that you cannot save yourself. You admit that you need a savior and you believe. That is, you, you stop trusting in yourself. You stop trusting in religion. You stop trusting in being good enough. You stop hoping that you know, when you, when, when you stand before God, he'll let you in, and you start trusting. You start trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8, it says this, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Great verse. It says that when we place our faith, our trust in Jesus, God gives us a gift. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works. None of you can boast. None of you can feel like you earned it and other people didn't. It's always a gift and no one can boast about this. So we repent and we believe and then the last thing we're gonna do is just draw an arrow from gospel to God's design because now we're moving back to God's design for us. We recover and we pursue. See, when God restores us, he brings meaning and purpose back into our lives, into our relationships. We find God's purpose for our marriage, with our kids, with our parents, with our time in our thinking, in our job, school, finances, attitudes, we begin to discover God's design. And just something so you notice, because sometimes people think, so is this the gospel? I, I give my life to Jesus, and then once he saves me by grace, then I have to work really hard to stay saved, which is how some people think. But in fact, Philippians tells us this. No, it is God. It is God who is working in you. Once you become saved, it is God who works. It is God who both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So once you become a Christian, God gives you the Holy Spirit. God gives you power. God gives you wisdom. God gives you a desire. You start to want to follow Jesus. He gives you the wisdom and the power to be able to do it. In Ephesians, it puts it another way. In Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship. 
Yeah, you are. God created you in Christ Jesus, notice, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's God who works in us. Once we become a Christian, it's not up to us to stay saved. We belong to God. Now it's God who works through us, who does great things through us, who allows us to follow God as his, as his design was for us. So what do we do? How do we respond to that? Two verses. The first one is this, Romans 10, 9. Notice, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So two things, he says. How do we respond to the gospel? First, we believe. We believe in Jesus. We believe. When we say we believe that God raised him from the dead, it means a lot of things. We believe God sent him. We believe he was God. We believe he went to the cross. We believe he died on the cross. He was buried. That's how he rose from the dead. And we confess it with our mouths. We believe and we confess. And in Colossians, and it tells us this, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, notice so walk in him. So now, just follow him. Just follow God's leading. Now, that's just one simple way to kind of walk people through the gospel. So, if you're not really artistic and drawing three circles is too complicated for you, then I have some good news for you. So if you have, if you have a, a phone, if you have an iPad, if you have an Android device or an iPhone, I can make this really easy for you. So just, uh, just go to the app store on your phone, uh, on Google or Apple, and just look up, there it says Life Conversation Guide. Just look it up and you can download the app and it's super easy. So like on my phone, I know you can't see this, but I can open it up and then it's already got the circle drawn for me because I'm a super bad artist and it says God's design and then you can just swipe your way through it kind of walks you through each step if at any point you can't remember a certain scripture you want to share oh it's right there in the corner and it comes up for you and then it you know kind of wipes the stuff off your face for you and walks you home as well it just does everything for you but the point is this I just want you to be prepared and feel like you're ready wherever you might be to be able to clearly articulate the gospel. And here, here's why this is so great. Sure enough, I get a text in the middle of the night, one o'clock in the morning from somebody who was here last night who says, wouldn't you know, I get a call at one o'clock in the morning, that's never good. And anyways, it, it, it ended up giving that person an opportunity to share the gospel with someone in their oikos because you never know when you're gonna have the opportunity. And here's the thing, I want you to be ready for that. I want you to be ready, and you may not need a phone on your app, which is great, but whatever it takes, I want you to be ready for that. And let's just kind of close with this, and we're out of time, but Paul, going back to, to Colossians in verse five, he says this. He says, I want you to always be gracious about this. Let me just close with this. We need to be gracious. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. I think his point is this. You don't know how long or how much time the people in your oikos have. You don't know that. You don't know how many more conversations you'll have with them. So make sharing Christ with them your top priority. Don't waste your time and your opportunities. And in verse six, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When he says seasoned with salt, he's just talking about this idea of kind of salting conversation. So I don't know if you like salt or not. I discovered something really weird. I discovered people like to put salt on their watermelon. 
Do you guys, you don't do that, right? Tell me, oh man, okay, don't do that. That's wrong. Salt on fruit is wrong. And then the other thing I discovered recently, I was at Starbucks and somebody's salting their coffee? Are you serious? And then somebody sent me, what? And then somebody sent me an email last night with all this research on why it helps make coffee less bitter. Here, listen, forget the research. Don't do that, all right? That's just, that's wrong. But salt your conversations. Here's what he means. It means to, it means to engage in conversations with unbelievers that, that kind of create an appetite for the gospel and, and for spiritual things. It means to, to, to make the conversation interesting. Don't be combative. Don't be condescending. Don't be judgmental and mean. Just be ready to explain your faith. Remember, you're not trying to win a debate. It's not your job to convince. It's not your job to save. Your job is just to deliver the good news. And I just want to close with a, with a story for you. So I share with you, and I've shared this before, that uh, I came to Christ when I was in high school. I was actually a freshman. I'd never been to church and I'd never read the Bible and I'd never heard the gospel and I really didn't know about Jesus Christ. Um, the only time I ever heard his name referenced was in a, just a way we don't reference it in church. And um, there was a guy in my dad, I've told you this before, but my, my dad who's not a Christian had, was working with a guy who was a Christian and apparently this guy considered my dad as, as being in his oikos and he was praying for my dad and wanted my dad to be saved. And so one day he decided to give my dad a book. Now, this is back in the late 70s and there was a really popular book back then called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. One of the most awful books ever written. I mean, like, he, it's about prophecy and he gets almost every single thing in that book wrong. But here's the thing. So the guy gives my dad the book and my dad doesn't want to read it. So he comes home and he, he's like, here, if somebody gave this book, maybe you want to read it. And I thought, sure, I'll read it. And so I opened up the book and I read it about halfway through the book, um, through all this just ridiculous stuff about prophecy. Um, Hal Lindsey presents the gospel. And that's all it took for me. I read the gospel, I got on my knees, I asked Jesus Christ into my heart, and I became a Christian. Now here's why I tell you that story, because it's one of the most awful books ever written about Christianity. If you went back and read it, read it now, you'd be like, oh my goodness, how could somebody get almost every single thing wrong about prophecy, except he got the gospel right. And it's interesting to me that in the middle of that mess of a book, God was still able to save me with just a very simple presentation of the gospel. And I've always been reminded of this. See, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to get it all right. But we do need to explain the gospel because it's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. So I tell you this because chances are you'll get more stuff right than Hal Lindsey if you go out and share the gospel. But even if it's not perfect, even if you don't make him laugh and cry in your presentation, the point is, Give them the gospel. Tell them that there's a God. Tell them that there's a God who loves them. Tell them that there's a God who died for their sin and who wants to embrace them and welcome them with open arms. So let's pray. Let's pray for open doors. Let's pray that God will help us to make the gospel clear. And let's pray that we actually do it. That we stop studying it and taking notes on it and getting apps on it, which all of that's fine. But let's pray that we actually start doing it, because imagine the potential if every one of us began to do that. Amen? Let's pray.